Welcome to another edition of On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Nikki Bandini. On today's podcast, the snow in Spain has been falling, but no slip-up in Atletico's title challenge. Ahead of the Rome derby, with no fans allowed, does it matter that it's a home fixture for both Lazio and Roma? And it's been snowing in Germany too, but the slipping and sliding for Stuttgart has been off the pitch. And, oh, did I mention Bayern? Dear, oh dear, Kiel left a banana skin on their pitch. (laughs) Andy, uh, perhaps we should begin with what has been going on with Maurizio Pochettino and his Paris Saint-Germain team. I think every single coach in Europe will be looking enviously at Pochettino. He's only been in the job a couple of weeks and he's already won his first trophy. And I want to know how you feel about this, Dotton, because I've had a lot of Tottenham fans already say to me, isn't it wonderful, Pochettino winning a trophy? To which my weary reply of, oh, what a fairy tale that is, Paris Saint-Germain <laughs> winning, winning, winning a trophy, has been sort of met with a little bit of pushback. I wonder, is Pochettino's greatest gift to Paris Saint-Germain making them a little bit more likeable? Good question, Nikki. I I think for a lot of people, he might. I think Pochettino is this slightly um, unique, might be pushing it too far, but certainly quite a rare figure, I think, who, um, because of the way things unfolded for him at Tottenham, both playing this really fun, entertaining brand of football and then perhaps being... Um, pushed out before everyone thought it was time and being replaced by someone who is such a universal villain in Jose Mourinho. I do think um, Pochettino has acquired this really um, warm reputation, like this very liked reputation, even amongst fans of clubs who perhaps don't like Tottenham or previously viewed him as a rival. So I do think there's a lot of goodwill for him. And perhaps if you were looking at that as your reason for making an appointment at Paris Saint-Germain, then I'd say there's quite a few others to appoint him as well. But if you wanted a manager who might help your brand have that likeable quality, I do think Pochettino is a good choice. When we're talking about likeable qualities as well, I I think we have to go back to the the little post-match not just the of course we, we could focus on the lovely cuddles that Pochettino was giving out to, <laughs> to to Neymar and Icardi and that's wonderful to see of course but I did want to touch on the the, the Twitter baiting between uh, Neymar and uh, Alvaro Gonzalez something that was obviously a hangover from that first game between the two in September when um, there was um, f- there were five red cards and and both uh, Neymar and Alvaro were investigated for for things they'd um, apparently said. And now afterwards, Neymar responded with a, a little picture of him uh, celebrating his penalty with uh, the Trophée des Champions in picture and saying, King, Alvaro, isn't it? And uh, Alvaro Gonzalez responds <laughs> with a picture of him, a still from him from television in the first half. Like where he, he was basically look, looked as if he was trying to wrestle Neymar's head off. And he's uh, added to it the caption, uh, my parents always taught me to take the bins out. 
come on, uh, uh, come on, OM forever. And um, Neymar's responded to this in kind. Uh, they told you that they forgot to tell you um, how to win titles. And then Alvaro has responded with a picture of Pele with three World Cups going <laughs> in the eternal shadow of the king. To which Neymar has again responded, and you in mine, I made you famous. You're welcome. <laughs> Do you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Stormzy and Wiley, the spots that they have. It, 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 it is a tradition that goes more more so in the music industry of, you know, um, knockbacks uh, between, um, well, spats between artists and so on. But what this shows, I think, Nikki, is... But they've got a sense of humour. <laughs> I, I do low-key love this. I probably shouldn't. I think it's just a little bit of 2020-2021, isn't it? It's this year of we're all stuck looking at our phones and our devices. And I think the degree to which this drama can play out on socials is definitely ramped up. But it's it's probably less fun if it's your club. But it's fun to look at from the outside. Who won the spat so far? So far, it's not over, obviously. Yeah, I think you can't call it yet. I mean, in the end, whoever wins on the pitch wins the spat, don't they? I think. I think so. I I, I think so. Neymar had the last word and he deserved the last word, I think. It's not the last word by a long shot. (laughs) Talking of which, talking of which, Atletico in Spain beat Sevilla 2-0, it's not the last word on on the the, the championship, though, is it? It's not the last word on La Liga yet by a long long shot. It's not, but they've put themselves in a really good position, Dotton, because um, having won this game, they're four points clear at the top with two games in hand. Now, I know we always think that games in hand at the top are worth more than games in hand at the bottom for obvious reasons. Um, And I think there is maybe a sense that with such a rammed calendar at the moment, maybe you don't want any games in hand at all because the more games you've got behind you, the, 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 the better really. Having said that, I do think that Atletico with, especially with there being a bit of a break, um, in, in La Liga coming up this weekend because uh, the Spanish Super Cups being being played. Um, Atletico to get past a team as good as Sevilla as well in this was absolutely vital to give themselves the actual points and that little bit more breathing room. And they, they really dug in and did a, did a great job. This felt like quite old Atletico, really. Um, they were good in the first half. They had to put up with a lot of pressure in the second half. Um, although having, having said that, I think the fact that Oblak didn't have to make a ton of saves was quite instructive that we've gone back to a point where again, Atletico are not just comfortable defending, they're kind of comfortable defending their own box. And there's not a lot of teams in world football that have been like that. It's been one of the keynotes of the, 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 the Simeone era that, you know, there's, there's pressure and then there's pressure on Atletico, which they seem quite fine with. They broke away to score that second goal um, with Saul to, to seal the game in the second half. And I think the fact that at the moment they're in such a position that they can bring Saul, who I think we've said in previous years 
is maybe the only Atletico player who both Real Madrid and Barcelona, their rivals at the top, would both really want. Um, I, I think that they're able to bring him off the bench at the moment is it shows that they've got an absolutely stacked squad. I I find this idea um, of um, how the weather would impact how you play quite fascinating. And I really want to avoid falling down stupid cliches like the wet Thursday night in, in Stoke. But um, I just have in my head, perhaps it's because we're currently in the NFL playoffs. And so I've been paying attention to that as well, that you have certain teams in American sport who, because of the geography of that country and the fact that you do have parts of the country with very different climates, almost build their whole identity sometimes around being cold weather teams. And there's a difference in how, um, in general, not always, but there's a difference in, in how effective you can be throwing the ball and running the ball in different weathers because it's harder to catch a ball when it's really cold and it's easier to to just sort of tuck it up and, and look after it. And there's something in the Atletico identity that feels familiar to that. It's obviously not the same. It's a different sport. It's not wanting to say at all that this is a team without some creative flair because that would be untrue. But I do feel like if you were to think about a cold weather team, Atletico feels like it, doesn't it? It feels like a team that you believe can dig in in the snow and, and do that thing. Um, and so this very odd uh, experience, because I think this is the coldest it's been in Spain for 50 years or something. Mm. Um, it feels like it, it suits them somehow. Uh, and there's cold and there's cold, isn't isn't there, Nikki? I mean, this this was minus seven, minus mm. seven for for this game. And of course, uh, Musa Dembélé, who I'm sure we'll come to in a in a minute, who's just arrived there on loan from Lyon. Uh, as, as we said on the ramble, he had an extraordinarily protracted journey to get there in the first place because you know Barajas, the the main airport in Madrid, has has, has been really affected by the by the snow. But it said something that in the first half. When you saw the Atletico subs weren't on the touchline, they were on exercise bikes at the back of the fir- the bottom tier of the main stand, and they were cycling um, in front of these you know those outdoor heaters that they have in pubs. And uh, <laughs> Joao Felix kept while he was cycling away because he started on the bench, so kept turning around and holding his hands up to it. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was pretty extraordinary. That brings to mind in the NFL, they have whole heated benches that they won't bring out for the cold games and they often have little tents on the sideline. And perhaps normally you couldn't do that at football because of obstructing the crowd. But actually, right now, why not? Tents. Tents. Yeah. Wow. Little, little mini tents with so you can have the heater inside and a space to get into. And yeah. Diego Simeone's always tense, of course. <laughs> uh, well, what I was going to say was that, um, and I think you have a point, Nicky, on, on the Atletico Madrid being a cold-weather club, quote-unquote. But mm. the way that people treated the unusual snowfall in Madrid was to go out on the town square and start doing the Macarena. Now, they're not taking, <laughs> they're not taking this cold weather. Honestly, as you can see on YouTube, there are thousands of them doing the Macarena. I thought they'd abandon that dance 
many generations ago. But I oh, wonder though. Never lose the Macarena. You know, I do wonder <laughs> if some of the players, uh, because I thought uh, Kieran Trippier had a brilliant game. He did. And he's been used by mm. Madrid Atletico in a way that he wasn't used uh, by Tottenham when he was playing for the Spuds. But this time around, he comes out. I think he he arguably gets man of the match from the Atletico point of view. I just wonder whether players are more used to playing in the cold. You know, North London on a cold night is a very cold, cold place to be. Well, of course, he, 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 started, he started in Burnley, of course, didn't he, at, mm. at, the, at the top level. Uh, so, I mean, Trippier was fantastic, though, and he's been fantastic for Atletico all, all season. I think it's worth emphasising, Dottenham, re-emphasising just how important he's been for them this season. Of course, he's come up against this ban situation, which is currently suspended um, while the authorities look into it. But up until the point he was banned, he played every single minute for Atletico in La Liga and Champions League, which is really an extraordinary record. It's also a lot of hard work when you bear in mind, A, what fullbacks have to do these days, um, B, how much players have to run for Atletico, and see the fact that this season they've quite often used three at the back, which very easily becomes five at the back when it's Atletico, of course. Um, so Trippi has had to play a, a different role again because he's been on the right and Yannick Ferreira Carrasco on the on the left hand side, a, a role that, as Lars Sivertsen has pointed out, he's, he's played for Belgium, but Atletico have been quite slow to, to to use him in. But he just added a whole other dimension having him back in the team they haven't rushed him back because um i know he's been quite upset behind the scenes he's found it quite difficult to 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 deal with the ban and he's 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 been quite distressed over it apparently but i think as well you know you look at the relationships in in the team and one of i think the key relationships since um marcus llorente has been reinvented from this defensive midfielder into a sort of um wide right come second striker sort of, of player. The relationship between him and Trippier is is excellent. I think you look at the combination between those two um, to lay on the first goal for Angel Correa, who came in and, and played a really good first half and scored that vital goal, which was a terrific finish, by the way. I think this, this to me, shows where Atletico are and what is helping them progress. Because... Where they are at the moment, they have to be title favourites. That's not to say that Real Madrid in particular have no chance. I, I still feel that Barcelona are a massive long shot for the title because I, I just don't think they're good enough. But I think as far as Atletico go, you look at Trippier and Llorente and I think their individual performances and their relationship says a lot about Atletico and how far they've come on because well, there's been this talk about how um, Diego Simeone has sort of gradually um, evolved the the style of the team. I'm not really convinced that's true. I think this game in particular shows that the way they play, the Simeone way, is still the same. They they still um, aim to to soak up and and be reactive. What I think has changed is when you go back to Atletico winning the title in 2014 and getting to the Champions League finals in 2014 and, and, and 2016, that team, that great Atletico team, is built around really strong characters. So be it um, not just the the, the star names like um, Diego Costa, but you look at 
uh, Gabby, the captain, who's was kind of the on-pitch coach as well, uh, Godin, uh, Felipe Luis, players like that. I think they, they've got personalities that can interpret what Simeone wants in their own way. And he trusts them to do so. And I think Marcos Llorente is a very good idea of that, becoming a player that Simeone didn't know he could be. And definitely, probably even he didn't know he could be. Uh, Trippier, I think, you look at the way that he's been prepared to commit in every way to becoming a, a proper Atletico player. He's a, he's a really great example. Ferreira Carrasco, who, who has become... A different player. I, th- I think you have that feeling that since he's he's come back from China, he's felt well. Look, I was really desperate to come back from China, and now I've been given that second chance at Atletico. I'm going to seize it with both hands. And um, as our own David Cartledge says, there's not so much the sense that Simeone has to coach him before games. And perhaps the biggest one of all, actually, is and I know people will talk about Joao Felix and uh, Luis Suarez, and quite rightly, Tom Lamar, who looked for so long like being a, a 70 million euro bust and now in a slightly different role in this sort of central sort of inside left role he's been absolutely fantastic of late and um i think Simeone put it quite amusingly in a recent press conference when he was asked about it he said yeah well the, the lads found some form thank god <laughs> as if he thought it was <laughs> never gonna happen but um that Lamar, who was talking, being linked with uh, loan moves back to the Premier League, pretty, uh, pretty recent, or to the Premier League, I should say, pretty recently, has all of a sudden become this vital player for them. And it doesn't seem like a, a Simeone master plan. All of these players, it seems as if these players have have stepped up and started taking the confidence and having the personality to bring Atletico on rather than there being some massive tactical rejig that's that's done it. But when when you're going for the title, Nicky, you don't mm. you don't let Diego Costa go, do you? And is Musa Dembele an adequate replacement? Well, I was just thinking about this though. If you're going for the title, you don't choose to let Thomas Partey go. And they didn't choose to let him go, but he had the release clause and he left. And I was just wondering, actually, um, how much that vacancy in turn, not that they're two like-for-like players, the formation has changed, but that vacancy in turn creates this new situation in which Lamar comes forward and, and is able to express himself differently. So I think um, you certainly don't choose to let your best players go and you don't want it to happen in in the midst of a, a title push, but I think this is this is surely of all the things that we praise Simeone for, this is his greatest strength. The thing that we ought to laud him for is that Atletico haven't been one um, consistent block all the way through his time there. He's kept them competitive with Real Madrid and Barcelona, despite having lesser resources season after season even with players coming and going I mean you wouldn't choose to say goodbye to Antoine Griezmann either but this team continues to find a way I think that's a really great point actually Nikki, about how they've recalibrated with the existing players and it does say a lot about Simeone as a coach doesn't it about how he can get more out of existing players you know give them 
the opportunity to self-empower. And I, I think maybe the recalibration of the team has worked for Lamar. It certainly worked for Coquet, whose form was going sideways. And if you go back, what, 13, 14 months, he was being booed by the fans at the Wanda Metropolitano, which just for a, a player who's played so many games for them, who's um, so linked with Cholismo, as they call it, the cult of Simeone, that was something that was really jarring and showed that, you know, maybe the, the whole project, the whole era had got a little bit stuck in the mud. So I think the Partey thing has worked for them in a, in a weird kind of way. But I do think between those players being able to put their best foot forward and the, the framework of Simeone, which I think will always remain the same, I think they have a far better idea of who they are, what they are, and what they're good at than either Real Madrid and and, and Barcelona. So I, I do think that that gives them the edge. And to briefly pick up on Diego Costa, well, Dotney, it's always so hard to move on from uh, a legendary team, a, a, a team and a squad that that gave so much. But bringing Diego Costa back was a, a failure. Um, he, he played 207 league minutes this season. And in the end, they were just really happy to get out from under his heinous wages. So um, I think Dembele is a player who has endured actually quite a frustrating season at Leon because he's not been first choice. He's struggled to get in the team. What we do know is he's an absolutely terrific finisher. And that's something that could really help Atletico because, of course, it's not about creating a lot of chances. It's making most of the chances that they do create. Sai cruzamento, cabeceamento, defesa, bola entra! Está feito o primeiro, Marco Icardi! Let's talk about Rome, because when in Rome do as the Romans do, although I've never found any Romans to do as they do in Rome. However, if you are in Rome and you are a fan of one of the two Rome clubs, you have to do like the other Rome club does, because you share a stadium, Nikki. I'm not I'm not sure whether... <laughs> Well, do you know what I mean? If they're playing each other, there is an important Rome derby coming up. Do you do as your fans do, which is to say, well, it's a home derby for us, or do you say, no, it's in a way... I'm confusing this. Both teams share one stadium. Are they playing away or are they playing at home for each set of fans? So normally that does matter. I know it might seem like it doesn't because of the shared stadium, but having um, three quarters of the stadium um, given over to one team's fans makes a very big difference. The two curve, the two ends um, behind the goals stay as they are, um, but the rest of the stadium will be taken over by whichever team is at home. So normally that does matter. And I think actually is quite a, a big factor in, in the Rome derby. Um, obviously, that won't be happening this um, Friday because of COVID. The Romans are trying to do as Romans do for a derby by making it into an event in all of the ways that they still can. There's going to be a light show before kickoff. There's going to be a violinist and a guitarist doing performances to try and build some atmosphere Lazio fans have made 
a banner that is apparently 120 metres long and 13.5 metres high <laughs> to hang down the River Tiber, um, the Tevere. So they've they've certainly been doing their part. And there was even talk, um, I believe the local council is sort of being approached about can some people go into the stadium before kickoff and hang some banners inside the stadium so you get some of that sense of the choreography yeah the grand um choreographies that we normally see in those games so they're trying they're trying to do a rome derby the way the romans do um but of course it's going to be very different because the fans won't be there and you won't have that hot atmosphere that you normally get inside the olympico out of the two clubs though which of um Lazio and Roma, which of them have benefited the most from not having fans in this shared stadium so far? Gosh, it's such a complicated question. If you ask me to name one team in Syria that has benefited most, I think it's no question Milan. I think Stefano Pioli has even talked about it. They're such a young team um, that not having that responsibility of playing at San Siro has has well, they're still playing at San Siro, but not having that responsibility of of a full San Siro has, has really helped them. I don't know if it's as clear-cut for either Lazio or Roma. Perhaps now that I think about it, actually, Simone Inzaghi has said a couple of times this season that he thinks Lazio have been hurt by not having fans there. He thinks that his team responds to that, that they need that energy and they haven't had it. Um and, but I, I don't know, it's hard to say whether the same is true for Roma or not. In in theory, I could say Rome, Rome in general and Roma particularly have been a club where the pressure on managers has been so intense and we've seen people come in and get chewed up at a really stark, surprising rate. I think about... Um, for instance, Luis Garcia, when he was there, how quickly things came down on him. Or, or even Luciano Spalletti, who was very popular there for a time when his relationship with Francesco Totti was deteriorating at the end. How much the fans brought that anger to bear on him specifically. So maybe Paolo Fonseca has benefited, but it's hard to unpick. What is certainly true is that um, Roma are above expectations this season. They're currently third in the table and have certainly been discussed as a potential title contender, whereas Lazio are coming off that Champions League qualification and a really good Champions League campaign so far going through to the last 16. They're a little bit behind where they want to be in the league. I mean, Nicky, I really admire Paolo Fonseca as a coach and I particularly admire the fact that he came back from one really big setback at a big club in Porto to to refine himself. He rebuilt things um, at Shakhtar Donetsk. But when we talk about um, the, the situation suiting a, a, a coach and particularly about rebuilding, following on from what we were talking about with Atletico earlier, I, I mean, do you think that you talked about the relationship between Spalletti and Totti. And it was clearly a bit frustrating for Spalletti at times that he kind of had to walk on eggshells around Totti because he's just this Roman 
legend. Have Roma kind of got the best of both worlds at the moment because um, he is living in a world, Fonseca, which is past not just Totti and De Rossi, but also you look at other big characters in the dressing room like Nainggolan, like Strootman have moved on. And that made it difficult, particularly to establish any of identity for um, for, for Monchi when he was when he was in charge of things. But now Fonseca has got a position where he's got a youngish team, but he's still got good experience in the likes of Jeco Mkhitaryan, who's been playing very well, Chris Smalling. I'm not just going through all the former Premier League players here, but you know they've they've got experience. The Manchester connection, obviously. Exactly, they've they've got experience, but at the same time, it's maybe easier for him to get his message across when he doesn't have to labour in the shadow of legends. I think that's definitely true. I think that expectations around this club are probably lower than they would have been otherwise, um, or at least than they have been in a few seasons. Although the board has never stopped wanting the team to be in the Champions League, I don't think many people were looking at the squad he has early in the season and expecting great things. And there is certainly a liberation that has come for all managers with Francesco Totti not being there. And of course, that's a two-sided blade because Totti was magnificent. I don't want to do that down at all. Um, But certainly it's less complicated when you're not juggling what you think are the desires of ownership with um, the balance of the team and um, the fans' adoration of one particular individual, which I think Spalletti's last season I wouldn't absolve him at all of some of his decisions because I think he did get to a point with Totti where he was cutting off his nose despite his face. But it's certainly a less complicated picture when you're not dealing with that. And Fonseca isn't. Having said that, to bring it back to what I just touched on, I don't look at this squad and think this is an exceptionally talented squad. And he's making a lot of it. Um, to mention yet another former Premier League player, although only briefly, Jordan Veritu has been so good in midfield this season. Yeah, He's got seven goals from there. You have Borja Mayoral coming in, um, someone without such a known reputation yet. He's already scored three times for them. Uh, Lorenzo Pellegrini is playing really well in midfield as well. And you think actually the one player that we were supposed to be most excited about with this team actually was Nicolò Zagnolo and he's been injured. So I do think Fonseca deserves a huge amount of credit for making the most of his resources. And look, sure, even Henrik Mkhitaryan, who had him with eight goals and eight assists, not even halfway through the season, he's performing way above what we've seen from him in recent seasons. I would have thought that the informed striker was Ciro Immobile, who what is in his 30s now and still scoring for fun? Well, he's always in form, isn't he, these last <laughs> few seasons. Um, unfortunately, except when he pulls on the Italy shirt a lot of the time, which is very frustrating for some of us, um, he's, he's going to be a key to this match, as he is for all Lazio matches. I think the matchup in general is very fascinating because... For all the praise I've just heaped on Fonseca, Roma have been great 
pretty much outside of the big games this season. They um, drew with Juventus and they drew with Inter, which are both pretty okay results. But they also got thrashed by Napoli and thrashed by um, Sassuolo, conceding four goals both times. Um, Sorry, I said Sassuolo and I meant Atalanta. Atalanta conceding four goals both times. Um, So they've had some really tough results in these big games. And if I was to highlight a vulnerability, I would say it's probably in the middle of the park, which is exactly where Lazio do some of their best work. I think the current formation, which is sort of a 3-4-3 for Roma, doesn't always leave enough men dropping back into that midfield area. And when you have Milinkovic-Savic, Luis Alberto feeding these balls to Immobile, who's always so good at exploiting those fast opportunities, it can be a really difficult <laughs> recipe to deal with. Um, sorry, my dog just chipped in there at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> what the, I actually maybe maybe you can ask Ross what he thinks <laughs> the future holds for Simone Enzaghi because he was tentatively linked with the Paris Saint-Germain job when it was going badly for Thomas Tuchel. I know Leonardo mm. likes him. Are we reaching a ceiling for Simone Enzaghi and why don't we see him linked with more top jobs in your opinion? This is a really fascinating moment for him because his contract runs out at the end of this season. And you would think Lazio would have been doing everything they could to get someone who's had the success he's had locked down. It hasn't happened yet. And there's talk about it happening after the derby. But I feel like if ever there was a moment for him to explore his options when there's no release clause for anyone to pay, this could be it. Um, We'll see. He wants to be paid now like a a top manager in Serie A, like um, maybe not at the level of Antonio Conte at Inter, but certainly in that top bracket, and he isn't yet. So, yeah, um, big moment for him and for Lazio, I think, on that front. I think he's done enough to earn that sort of opportunity. I think he was probably the number two choice for Juventus this summer if they hadn't gone for Andrea Pirlo. And a lot of people think they should have gone in that direction. So watch this space is all I can say on that one. I don't have um, news that he's definitely going somewhere, but I think it's possible for sure. Nulla potuto Buffon, nono gol in campionato, 224 gol, nord alla d'un passo il capitano, braccio al cielo, tutti i giocatori su di lui. Let's return to, to the uh, the winter of our discontent. If you're a, a Stuttgart fan, you must be feeling like the snow is causing slip-ups off the pitch for you <laughs> rather than on the pitch, Andy. But what, what, why is there unrest at the club? Well, I, I think they're a bit upset that you won't leave Shakespeare alone when you're talking about winter, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I didn't even give it my 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 full Sir Lawrence or Lord Olivier. Now is the winter <laughs> of their discontent. 
I think that's I think that's going to be included in the the TV trailer for their next home game. But uh, that, that that would be something I think for for Stuttgart because there there has been a bit of discontent off the pitch, as, as, as you point out, uh, Don, and everything on it is going swimmingly. Um, you're talking about a huge club with a lot of members, seventy thousand members, um, that has perpetually underachieved. Uh, since they last won the league nearly 15 years ago. Um, and since then, and since that, it has to be said in, in, in retrospect, particularly really exceptional team um, uh, with with Gomez, Kadira, um, Thomas Hitzelsberger, who we'll come to in a, in a, in a minute himself. Um, it's, it's been tough for them. And now they've got themselves in a position where they've been promoted back to the top flight and everything looks good. Not just on the field, because in terms of on the field, um, they've been competitive in pretty much all of their games. Um, they're really, really good to watch. They're daring. They've got young players like uh, Tangi Kulibali, Silas Wamangituka, who's been one of the standouts, I think, um, in, the, in the Bundesliga this season. Um, so many good players to, to, to watch. And they've got the best away record in the division after winning uh, 4-1 at, at Augsburg at the, at the weekend. They've got goal threats from everywhere. I mean, Koulibaly has only started on the bench for the last couple of games. And, um, you know, they've, they've got loads of other options. Uh, Nicolas Gonzalez, who looked like he was going to go uh, to the Premier League, maybe Leeds or Brighton in the, 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 the summer. Um, he's been pretty good as, as, as well. Um and, and of course, they were the team that won five-one at Dortmund, which precipitated the fall of, of of Lucien Favre. Now, I think if you look at it on a superficial level, it looks as if everything is right, not just on the pitch but off it as well, because they have Sven Mislintet, who's their sporting director. The role that he kind of thought he was going to get at Arsenal, but it didn't work out like that because there was a bit of a boardroom rejig. What he's done very well, as as well as um, put players in a good position um, to be used by um, Pellegrino Matarazzo, the coach, and for him to assemble a good squad. He's managed to lock these young talents down. Now, when he's talked about the winter transfer window, he said, well, we don't need to sell anyone, but we could. I mean, <laughs> while these players are getting attention, maybe we could, and we could pretty much charge what we like because there aren't any release clauses and people know they're good for the future and they've got three or four years of contract left. And Mislintat has done lots of terrific work off the field to ensure that has happened. However, the crux of the issue at the moment, Don, is the fact that Thomas Hitzelsberger, who's not just the head of spores, but he's also the CEO of the AG. And what the AG is, is quite normal to have it in German clubs, is that you have two separate bodies with, with within the club. You have the club itself, which is the sporting side of it, and the AG, which is kind of um, like a, a the PLC, really, the German equivalent of the PLC. And it's, it's like the commercial, the business bit of the club is devolved. So you can keep the sporting interests and the financial interests separate. Now, Hitzelsberger, who's very popular with Stuttgart fans, not just because he was part of that title-winning side, but because... He's thought of as a, a good Stuttgart guy. Um, he's worked at the club for a few years now since he's, he's, he's been back in Germany. Um, and he's, he's been part of a very successful mini era that seems to be blossoming at the, at the moment. He's really publicly criticised the, the current president of the club, 
um, Klaus Vogt. And uh, he said that Vogt has um, said he would do loads of things that that he wouldn't do, um, in, particularly in terms of creating new investment. And he's right. Forked hasn't done that. Um, there's also been a, a mini scandal about um, a, a leak of members' data, um, which Forked has spent quite a lot of money on getting externally investigated. The results of that are, are yet to be forthcoming. And Hitzelsperger has said, well, seeing as I think he's doing a crappy job, I should be the president and the CEO. So he doesn't want to give up his current job, but he wants to take the presidency as well. And for the first time, there's been a bit of pushback um, from the fans against Hitzelsberger because um, a lot of people think that um, the AG and the sporting side of the club are, are separate for, for very good reasons and that they, they shouldn't be mixed up. It's a potential conflict of interests. It feels like a power grab to, to, to some people. Um, but... <laughs> I can understand why it's really frustrating for loads of Stuttgart fans, this idea of this kind of civil war at the club. Because like I said, not only does that have serious implications for the structure and the future of the club, but they've just got back on an even keel. They're good to watch. They're doing okay. There's so little of the drama that there has been in in, in previous years. And that this club that's so well supported seems to be kind of needlessly digging itself another hole uh, that at least that's how a lot of fans see it it's quite frustrating yeah although uh, i imagine nikki for a lot of german football fans it's what happens on the pitch not what happens on the capital when a bunch of patriots go to storm oh, uh, the politics of the day as it were and i wonder whether uh, to carry on my shakespeare um <laughs> quotes whether Bayern Munich is now thinking, hang on, we're the ones who come, who see and who conquer because um, clearly they're not anymore, are they? Well, apparently not. Two losses in four days um, between Mönchengladbach in the league and then um, Holsten Kiel knocking them out of the um, DFB Pokal, which is the first time... Bayern have lost to a non-Bundesliga um, side in the Pokal for a very long time. I don't actually know how many years it is. It's a lot. Um, maybe someone has that. I I do think this is one of the sort of many things we might look back on at the end of the year and say, these were the weird things that happened in the pandemic, things that happened in <laughs> empty stadiums, things that happened without um, the normal grounding of football around us. But it's still an astonishing thing. I mean, frankly, it really feels astonishing to see Bayern lose two games to anybody at this point, but certainly to see them be knocked out by a lower league club. Yeah, and um, it was it was it felt like quite a, a cup night as well. I mean, Holstein Kiel are, are doing pretty well in the second tier. They're they're challenging for promotion at the at the moment, and of course, a lot of people in Germany are, are, are talking after this game, saying they would be welcome in the top flight. They would do a good job. Although, of course, there's a difference between a, a one-off game and a, a thirty-four um, game Bundesliga season. But what really appealed to me about this was not just Kiel's 95th minute equaliser that took it into extra time um, and, and then to penalties. Not 
just the fact that um, Bayern were wearing their um, Adidas human race strips uh, that you m- <laughs> might have seen that um, yes, really yes. look as if they were designed by children. But of course, that's quite <laughs> lovely, um, especially in a cup context. I particularly liked the snowy element of it, Dotton. And the, the fact yeah, that yeah. Kiel is north, north, north. It's n- more north than Hamburg. It's almost Denmark. So to have the snow falling as the equaliser went in, to have the snow f- still falling during the penalties, and of course, with current lockdown restrictions, to have Kiel fans leaving their houses in their cars to drive around town, like hammering on their their horns, it felt like something out of Serie A, actually. <laughs> the snow was still falling, by the way, at that point. Mm. Something out of Serie A, Nikki? Do you think? I, I, I feel like we haven't seen um, something quite like that in Serie A recently. The fans are um, honking, but there have been actually, of course, cliche though it is, it is true that. In Italy, the moped remains a very popular form of, of transport. <laughs> and we've seen some some more going toward games than coming out of them. Some moments, I suppose, that are celebrated on the road like that. Um, definitely, uh, I'm trying to think which game it was. Milan travelling to a game, a home game on the team bus recently and, and getting a convoy of mopeds and flares and flags and... And some of that. So that's the way definitely you do some it. of that. Yeah. that. That is the way you do it. I can imagine the team thinking, yeah, we've made it. We've made mm. it. We've got a convoy of mopeds escorting us. Is it a big deal, though? Is it a big deal by losing to Kiel um, in a cup match that, well, that may not be their priority? Is it a big deal? I know what you're saying, Dotton. They're greedy for all the trophies. And um, to for, with Bayern's current level of don- dominance, to see them in a position where they can't win the double is already extraordinary, I think. But I think you're right as well. Something has to give. Um, I, I think it's going to be difficult for a, a lot of teams, to, to even the habitually dominant ones, to, to go out and win doubles this season because maybe something has to give at some point in the season. But... Being no doubt about it, Bayern wanted to win this game. I mean, they put out a really strong team. Lewandowski began the game on the bench, but he came off it after 65 minutes and played the end of it, played extra time, scored the first penalty in the shootout. So they were all in for this. It all all hurt. Clearly, it's the games that are affected by the weather that we ought to keep our eyes on when we ask you to nominate a game of the week each. Uh, who wants to go first, Andy? Um, I am going to go Friday night. I don't like to go so early as Friday night normally, Don. I, I prefer to keep people waiting till Sunday. Um, but th- this, this, is, this, is, this is exceptional. Um, you can chill on Sunday with Craig David because you'll need to after this. Um, Friday night, uh, Porto versus Benfica, or classical. And um, whoever loses this is in a bit of a hole because um, Sporting are currently top, currently unbeaten, currently dropped only four points all league season. Um, so Sporting will be have their feet up and be watching this with 
I think a great deal of enjoyment because if there's a winner between Porto and Benfica and both of them have to go for it because they're they're four points off the top, um, does that leave if they have to go for it? Does that leave them open um, to losing the game, which would be like potentially ruinous in terms of um, the title? Because if you look at Portuguese title races, and of course this isn't a normal season, it's clearly not a normal season because Sporting are top and they haven't won it since two thousand and two, but teams find it hard to, to if if you've got a, a five, six, seven point gap in Portugal, that's a mountain because the top teams don't lose a lot of games. Um, so um, Porto have, have been in better form recently. Medi Tademi is uh, the Iranian striker is scoring a lot of goals. And he, he looks the real deal. Um, a couple of young players are really shining, including, um, Fabio Vieira. Um, I, I think there's a lot of pressure on Benfica for this one because I said right at the start of the season when they went out and spent over 80 million euros on transfer fees, I have no idea how there is a situation, how a situation can evolve in which Benfica don't win the league. If they lose this, I think the pressure on Jorge Jesus becomes quite intolerable and he's he's under a lot of pressure anyway. Yeah, Nicky, clearly Andy's gone for a warm weather or relatively warm weather fixture there. Uh, can you <laughs> redeem matches in terms of the weather? How cold can you get for your game of the week? I don't think I can go as cold as Spain, unfortunately. Um, and I'm also, oh, can't believe you've tried on a Friday night, Andy, to usurp Lazio against Roma. Um, People the, have two the, screens the, 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 like, these days, Nicky. You can't, you can't oh, usurp the the Rome derby. <laughs> but actually, even within um, Italy, I, I have a dilemma because you should watch the Rome derby. But we've already talked about that, and I want to point out that on Sunday night, there's also what's referred to often in Italy as the Derby d'Italia, the derby of all of Italy between Inter and Juventus. And it's a loaded game this season. It's a really big game because Juventus have been a bit off the pace. They have dropped points in the first part of their first season under Andrea Pirlo. And now, excuse me, they are trying to um, to make that up. They've won three games in a row. They're in this position, six points behind Milan, who obviously first, four points behind Inter, with a game in hand on both of them. So they they need this head-to-head win to really bring themselves back fully into that title picture. On the other hand, Inter, who have a long and frustrating history of having these January slumps, have lost to Sampdoria. They've drawn with Roma, which, look, it's it's no shame in drawing away to Roma. Um, But this nevertheless feels like a really pivotal game for them as well, because... This is your chance to knock Juventus back out of this conversation, to make it just about you and Milan at the top of the table. And frankly, it's also always going to be Antonio Conte against Juventus, against the club he played for, against the club that he brought into this era of what's now nine consecutive league titles. So that's a huge game on Sunday night. So I don't really know which of those is my honest game of the week because you should watch both of them
This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 